title of my sermon this morning is The Lord's Supper, Part 3, Preparation for the Lord's Supper. Uh, I was preparing this on Wednesday, and I realized that Wednesday was the 54th anniversary of John F. Kennedy um, being assassinated. 54 years ago, hard to believe. So Kennedy was visiting Dallas in order to work out some issues within the Democratic Party in Dallas. There were some arguments between the conservative Democrats and the liberal Democrats. The president's motorcade was to take him from the Dallas Love Field Airport, where he landed his plane, um, to the Dallas Trademark, which is more or less like a wholesale trade center, which houses showrooms, and they showed stuff off there. They were having a lunch, and there, a fundraiser there, and that's where he was headed. Uh, other than the driver and the Secret Service agent sitting in the front, Kennedy was accompanied by his wife, um, Jacqueline, Texas Governor John Connolly, and the First Lady of Texas, Connolly's wife, Nellie. In the, 1960, or the 1961 Lincoln Continental four-door convertible limousine made the slow and sharp turn into Dealey Plaza around 12.30 p.m. Central Time. Uh, shortly thereafter, shots were fired. Connolly, the governor, uh, suffered three broken ribs, a punctured lung, a shattered wrist, and had a bullet lodged in his leg. But after four hours of surgery, survived the attack. John F. Kennedy, of course, was not as fortunate. Uh, the, the second of the three shots struck him, um, went through his neck, and the final one uh, hit him in the head, killing him pretty much instantly. Now, my point here, and we're not going to dig into whether or not we think Lee Harvey Oswald was the lone shooter, whether there's some other crazy conspiracy theory. That's not my point. My point here is to point out how the government and, and the law enforcement officials, including the Secret Service and the FBI, etc., they were not particularly prepared for protecting the president. That, that's my interpretation, and that's where I'm kind of going with this. Uh, the examples of this are the route that they took. The route was actually announced, and this is hard for me to believe being a millennial and, and, and kind of understanding how they protect the president nowadays. They actually announced the exact route he was going to take through the city two months ahead of time, which just to me just seems so crazy because they would never do that now. The vehicle, of course, was open. The vehicle had to make the slow and sharp turn into Dealey Plaza. And then, of course, they didn't do very well when it came to um, looking for snipers and, and, you know, looking through the high-rise buildings of the area for potential gunmen. The Kennedy assassination brought about dramatic changes to the way the Secret Service protected the president. Uh, much more money was allotted, as well as manpower. Uh, they improved intelligence gathering, so they had a lot of, how, how do you say it, like they, they sent people ahead of, ahead of him to prepare uh, on a much higher level. They had counter-sniper units, some began, along with all sorts of other stuff. The Secret Service was not prepared to protect the president, but quickly became much more prepared to protect the future president of the United States, which of course they did. Now, my tie-in here is that in the same way, Christians need to be prepared to worship God. Christians need to be prepared to worship God. And as we're going to find out today, a lack of preparation can have a drastic effect on our well-being as well as our walk with God. This morning we're going to talk about being prepared to worship God, and being prepared to partake in the Lord's Supper. But before we do, let's take a moment to go to the Lord in prayer. Dear Father in heaven, I just want to lift you up now and just praise you for the chance you've given me to declare your word. I ask that you bless us as we, as a group, uh, just partake in your word today and, take a, and dig into your word today and try to understand this final section of the Lord's Supper according to Paul in 1 Corinthians 11. Allow me to be inspired and led by your spirit and just guided through this sermon, saying only what you want me to say, and allow each and every one of us, including myself, to partake in your word, and to be fed by your word today. In your name, amen. 
If you have your Bible, go ahead and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. For the past few weeks, we've been making our way through the 11th chapter of 1 Corinthians and Paul's thoughts on the Lord's Supper and worshiping God. Two weeks ago, I talked to you about the proper way of worshiping God and made the statement, divisions within the church hinder our worship of God. Last week, we talked about, we took a look at Paul's account of Jesus administering the Lord's Supper, or what we would call communion. We talked about the purpose of the Lord's Supper and how the Lord's Supper is one, ordained by God, two, is a reminder of Jesus' sacrificial death for our sins, and then three, points towards, the Lord's Supper points towards Jesus' eventual return. Now today we're going to talk about being prepared to partake in the Lord's Supper or worshiping God or and worshiping God. Let's read most of my text right now. I'm going to read it ahead of time and then we're going to break it down. I'm going to give you two options followed by some hope for the future. So let's take a look at 1 Corinthians chapter 11 starting at verse 27 going down to begin with verse 32. Then we're going to read verse 33 and 34 in a moment. So the Apostle Paul writes to the church in Corinth, Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself, and in so doing he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick, and a number, a number sleep. But if we judge ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord, so that we will not be condemned along with the world. So like I said, Christians have two options. We have two options. Unworthy worship of God or worthy worship of God. And these are going to be my two points, and like I said, following my two points, we're going to look at the final two verses and look at some hope for the future. So, number one, worthy worship of God. We're going to kind of go backwards here, and as you're going to see, I'm going to bounce through the text uh, a little bit more than I might normally do. They're, they're not uh, select portions of the text, they're different pieces of it. So we're going to look at it and kind of, uh, kind of break it up a little bit here. So, worthy worship of God is God-centered worship. Worthy worship of God is God-centered worship. So what is worthy worship of God? Let's take a look at this. Jesus told the Samaritan woman at the well in John chapter 4, verse 23 and 24. And some of this is kind of a, a review from a couple weeks ago. But an hour is coming and now is when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be His worshipers. God is spirit and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. So to worship God in spirit means to be worshiping God outside of a spiritual box. Worshiping God is not something that is done exclusively within these walls of this building. It's something that should be done 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, wherever you are and whenever you are, kind of thing, whatever you're doing. To worship in truth means to use the proper guide that God has given us to worship Him. That, of course, is the Word of God. The truths found in the Bible need to be our guide when we worship a God. If you are worshiping Him in a way that goes against what the Word of God says, it's very simple. You're worshiping Him in an unworthy manner. You are not worshiping Him correctly. If your worship does not line up with what He's written, 
through his divine authors, then we have a problem. Romans chapter 12, verse 1 says, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Our entire lives need to be dedicated to God. If we do this, we will find ourselves acceptable to God, thus in worthy worship of Him. So now my question is, how do we make sure that we are worshiping God in a worthy way? And we see this in our text. So start off, look at verse 28. So I'm going to read verse 28 again here. Uh, for verse, uh, chapter 11, verse 28 says, so we're skipping verse 27 for now, verse 28. But a man must examine himself, and in so doing, he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. So we must examine ourselves. We must examine ourselves. The Greek word used here for examine means to test, prove, or one I, a word I really enjoyed using here is scrutinize. We need to scrutinize ourselves to see whether a thing is genuine or true. The literal meaning comes from testing objects. And you think about testing metals, and that's really what the meaning here is. You ever see, I, I have no clue why they do it, but you know, the guy bites a coin to make sure it's a real, uh, proper metal. Never made any sense to me, but that's what they do. You check the metal. For me, I thought was wood. You know, when I ever, whenever I go to get like two-by-fours or something, I'm going to check that wood. I'm not going to get, you know, ten two-by-fours and five of them are of good quality and the others are warped. I'm going to make sure I get ten good two-by-fours. I'm going to check the two-by-fours before I purchase them. And then another one is buying a car or a house. When you go buy a car, you're going to take it on a test drive. You know, when you buy a house, you want to look inside that house. You want to make sure the house is what you're getting, what you're expecting. Christians need to examine or scrutinize themselves. We need to, do, we need to make checks in our lives. We need to check ourselves. And I, I found, I came up with three checks that we should all do to our lives. They also have three questions attached to them. They're in your, uh, in your bulletin if you're interested. It says, first of all, check with God. Meaning, what is God telling you? Talk to Him. Pray to Him. What is prayer telling you about a particular behavior, a particular lifestyle that you're participating in, whatever it may be? And then check the Bible. Does your behavior line up with what the Bible says Christians should act like? Jesus gives us the perfect guide right here. I mean, it, we can't, as much as we might want to, we can't rearrange what the Word of God says to make it say what we want it to say. It just does not work that way. We have to do what it says. We have to follow. Then finally, check with other Christians. Do other Christians feel the same way about your behavior? Is that your behavior is godly? You, know? you might think, oh, God is telling me this, and I'm going to interpret the Bible the way I want. But when you ask your fellow Christian, and they say, well, I don't know if I agree with you there, then there might be a problem. And I think that's really what this means. That's how you examine yourselves. Now, verse 31 now. Look at verse 31 with me. But if we judge ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. If we examine ourselves and heed what our explanation, and, and, and follow through with what the examination tells us about ourselves, then we will find ourselves judged rightly. Uh, this is the way verse 31 is translated in the NIV, and then I'm going to read you the New Living Translation. It says, the NIV says, but if we were more discerning, but if we were more discerning with regard to ourselves, we would not come under such judgment. And then the, the New Living Translation is even more powerful here. It says, "But if we would examine ourselves, we would not be judged by God in this way." So if we judge ourselves, we don't need to be judged and disciplined by God. 
the key here is following through with what our examination of ourselves tells us. Because we all know that's the hard part. You might know what you should do. It doesn't mean you're doing it. If I went to the doctor and the doctor told me, well, you, you know, you're, you're what, the camera and we think she might not be able to drink milk. You know, that milk makes her stomach hurt, right? So we can heed what the doctor says, or we can ignore the doctor altogether and just keep on doing what was wrong and hurting us in the first place. If we don't do what the doctor tells us to do, we, there's no explanation, no excuse for us. There is no good examining in ourselves. There's no good in, 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 there is no good in examining ourselves and seeking the will of God in our lives if we are not going to follow through with the will of God says for us to do. If we pray to God, if we read our Bible, if we ask our fellow Christians, if we examine ourselves and we ignore the answer of that examination, we ignore the outcome of that examination, there's absolutely no reason for us to do it in the first place because we're not going to listen to it. Worthy worship of God is focused on Him in spirit and truth, and we do that by examining ourselves. We, when we ignore our own self-examination, then we are ignoring the will of God in our lives. Bottom line. This is self-centered worship, which is unworthy worship of God. Number two, unworthy worship of God equals self-centered worship. Again, what is self-centered worship? What is unworthy worship of God? It's the opposite of what I said before. It's not worshiping God in spirit and truth. It's not giving your entire lives to God as a sacrifice, as um, Jesus said in, in John chapter 4, and as Paul wrote in Romans 12. Look at verse 27 with me now. So let's read, I'm going to read verse 27 again. Paul writes, Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. A Christian is found guilty when they partake in the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. That's what this is saying. Unworthy manner comes from the Greek adjective anakisos, anakisos, which means unworthy, unfit of a thing. It comes from the idea of weighing something. Now back when, you know, they, they'd want to know that the weight was right. You know, they'd, you know, you'd have the scale, and the scale should be even. You ever see they tried to trick you and you have less on one? They're not going to just take your word for it when it came to the little bag of coins, they weighed it out. They made sure that the weight evened out. Guilty comes from the adjective enokas, enokas, and has the meaning of being bound under obligation, subject to liable. From a forensic perspective, it means the connection of a person either with a crime or his crime, or with the penalty or trial, or with that which who... Or, that, or, that, or with that against who or which he has offended, meaning guilty, worthy of punishment, is what, it, what it's referring to here. Now look at verse 29. Verse 29. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. Again, this is in reference to Christians, by the way. I mean, it's easy to look at this and say, oh, this isn't really talking about a Christian. This is talking about a non-Christian. But Paul's writing to the church in Corinth. He's not writing to the people of the city of Corinth. I mean, he's telling this to Christian people. So this is all in reference to Christian people. Christians face judgment from God if they worship God, meaning, part, I mean, more specifically partake in the Lord's Supper, in an unworthy manner. The Greek word used here for judgment comes from the noun krima and means a decree of judgment condemnation of wrong, 
the decision, whether severe or mild, which one passes on the faults of others. We are judged guilty if we're worshiping God in an unworthy manner. Now verse 30. For this reason many among you are weak and sick, and a number sleep. There are natural consequences, physical consequences for worshiping God in an unworthy manner, and of course, that means sinning. When you sin, you're worshiping God in an unworthy manner, and there's natural consequences for those sins. Now, this is not saying that God is intentionally doing us harm. I mean, Tabitha always told a story of how, you know, her mother um, was real sick, and she died before, I think Tabitha was 17 when her mom died. And Tabitha, the church that she was attending, was saying that the reason her mom was sick is because she wasn't worshiping God right. That's not what this is saying. What I think this is saying is that there are natural consequences for committing sins. If you're committing sexual sin, there's a good chance you might get an STD or a broken marriage or have some sort of a sexual addiction. If you have a drug or alcohol problem, you're going to face addiction. You might even face death. I'm sure you're going to face financial um, loss. You're not going to be able to afford to buy anything because all you're buying is alcohol. If you have a problem with hate or anger, all you're living is a bitter and angry life. That's the consequence, the physical consequence. You, you have harm towards yourself. You might harm yourself. You might harm others, even to the point of murdering someone else. Pride has the consequence of an inability to learn. If you're so proud, you're not going to ever try to learn anything new. You might even have broken relationships, and you're probably going to be self-centered if you have a pride problem. Greed has the consequence of always being discontent with life and what God has given you. The point I'm making here is that our sins have consequences, natural, physical consequences, just the way it works. Now look at verse 32. But when we are judged, but when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord so that we will not be considered or not be condemned along with the world, so that we will not be condemned with the world. We are disciplined by God, so we don't face condemnation. That's what this is really getting at here. When a Christian worships God in an unworthy manner, they will face discipline. This is not saying that they're going to face, I mean, it's very specifically saying you're not going to face condemnation. If you are truly saved, if you have a relationship with Jesus, it says that you are disciplined so that you don't face condemnation. You don't face hell, essentially, is what it's saying here. Someone who faces condemnation is someone who has never been saved in the first place. I think that's just so important to point out. If you are saved, if you have a genuine relationship with Jesus, you're not going to face condemnation. You're not going to face death and hell. You have Jesus in heaven even when you make mistakes. You will not lose your salvation if you are in need of godly discipline. One verse that I think speaks so clearly on this is one I read a couple weeks ago. Philippians chapter 1, verse 6 says this. Paul says, For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. This Greek word used here for confident could also have the meaning of persuaded. Paul is persuaded. And amazingly, it's a verb that's in what they call the perfect tense. I've talked about this before. The perfect tense is action that took place in the past, but the results of that action don't have an end. They continue into the future. Meaning Paul's persuasion, Paul's confidence, wasn't a one-time thing. It was a continual thing. Meaning every time he made a mistake, he still had the confidence of the salvation of Christ. Jesus' death on the cross is not limited to 
a one-time sinful condition. You don't have to stop sinning in order to have salvation. Because guess what? The Bible says you're not going to stop sinning. You don't need Jesus to die for you every time you commit a sin. That's what this is saying. The Greek word used here for perfect means to bring to an end. And this is such a beautiful word. And I don't really think the word perfect does it justice. To bring to an end, to accomplish, to execute, to complete. What Paul is saying is that he is confident of the fact that the good work, meaning the work of salvation that God began in your life, will be perfected, will be completed, will be brought to an end and, and, and at the day that Jesus comes back is the point. Meaning there's not going to be a pause in this good work, there's not going to be a break in this good work, it's a once and for all deal. You are not going to lose your salvation, you're not going to fall to condemnation because you've committed a sin, no matter what that sin may be. If you have a genuine salvation in, in Christ. Christians will be disciplined though. We will be disciplined. And it's because of this discipline that we're not going to face condemnation. The Greek word used here in verse 32 for discipline comes from the, comes from the verb paiduo and means to train a child, to chastise. It has the idea of, of those who are molding the character of others for, by reproof or admonition. In Acts chapter 7 verse 22, Luke records the words of Stephen as he's giving his sermon right before he was stoned to death where Stephen says Moses was educated. In Acts chapter 22 verse 3, Luke is recording Paul's own words, his sermon before the people in Jerusalem as he's being arrested telling them that he was educated by the Pharisee Gamaliel. And then Paul uses it in 2 Timothy chapter 2 verse 25 in calling on Timothy to correct those who are in opposition. And then finally, one of my favorite verses in the entire Bible, Revelation chapter 19 and then verse 20, Paul, Jesus says, Those who I love, I reprove and discipline. Therefore be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and will dine with him and he with me. Jesus' discipline is not for condemnation if we're saved. All we have to do is turn to him and rely on him and everything will make some sense. My point is that discipline does not equal condemnation, but correction. Discipline does not equal condemnation, but correction. Every time our children make a mistake, doesn't mean we go and we condemn them. Thank God we don't, because our kids would be in trouble. I'd be in trouble. I feel bad for my parents. Our discipline of our children is to correct them for the future. The same is true of Jesus. His discipline of us is not a discipline that sends us to hell, but a discipline that brings us closer to Him. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 and 17 says, All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. God's goal in correcting or disciplining us is for us to be closer to Him and prepared to serve Him in every possible way. Sadly, there are so many people who do not want to heed the judgment or correction of God. These individuals who are supposedly saved, I don't believe are actually saved. If someone is unwilling to change their ways, I don't think salvation could possibly be in them. And that's the hard and true part of it. We need to change our ways and become closer to Christ. 
So let me kind of summarize and close up here. I wouldn't call this my conclusion. I'm doing it a little bit differently, but this is the end of my sermon. So the bottom line is this. If a person does not turn their life over to Jesus, meaning accept Jesus' free gift of salvation, then that person has only one option. Now, this isn't just Christians. This is everybody. And their only option is condemnation and hell, forever separated from Christ. But there is hope for the future. And this is the beauty of it all. No matter how many times someone in the Bible points towards condemnation, points towards hell, he then points right towards Christ again. Because the hope for the future is the beauty of Jesus' amazing grace that He gave us upon the cross. Even though you may be found guilty, even though you face judgment, even though you face discipline and condemnation, there is still a way out. There is still hope. Look at the rest of my text, the rest of chapter 11, verse 33 and 34. Paul says, So then, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home so that you will not come together for judgment. The remaining matters I will arrange when I come. Remember that the Lord's Supper was broken down into two different sections. The agape communal meal, essentially a potluck dinner, and then the Eucharist, which was communion or the Lord's Supper. Many within the Corinthian church would begin eating without the rest of the group arriving or would divide their group up and eat only with a select group of people meaning they're dividing their group economically and even racially. The point is that they were doing things inappropriately, thus worshiping God in an unworthy manner. Paul is calling on the Christians in Corinth to wait to eat until everyone arrived. And if they couldn't do that, they should just eat at home so hunger does not cause them to sin. There is still hope. Paul, the murderer of Christians, the man who at one point in his life made it a point to curse Jesus, writes this, uh, long Second Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7 to 10. Because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself. Concerning this, I implored the Lord three times that it might leave me. And he, meaning God, said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weakness, so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weakness, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties. For Christ's sake, for when I am weak, then I am strong. My grace is sufficient for you. That's the point. The grace of God is all that we need. God's grace is put on display in the perfect life, the sacrificial death, and the reconciling resurrection of Jesus Christ. God's grace is all you need. No matter how many sins you've committed, no matter how many bad black marks are upon your life, God's grace is all you need. You no longer face condemnation if you put your full trust in Jesus for your salvation because God's grace is all you need. You are free from the bondage of sin. You are a new creature in not only the physical, but also the spiritual likeness of God. Because God's grace is all you need. Let me close in prayer. Dear Father in heaven, I just thank you and I praise you now for all that you've done for us and the blessings you poured upon us through this message this morning. Lord, we all need to examine ourselves and look upon ourselves. We need to change our ways so that they are closer to your ways. That's the point. 
But Lord, the other element of this that is important to remember is that no matter who we are, no matter where we've come from, no matter how sinful we might feel that we are, You've already saved us. You've died for us once and for all. It's a permanent death. It's not one that can change. It's not one that's going to fluctuate. The salvation we received is not one that changes. It's always, it's there, it hasn't gone away. So if we've accepted you, if we saved you, even when we stumble in our faith, Lord, we know that your grace is sufficient for us. It is permanent, it is once and for all. You will complete the good work that was begun in us upon our, the moment of our salvation until the time you return. We are free from worry of condemnation. We are free from the bondage of our sins. Those that we've committed in the past, those that we're committing now, and those that we will commit in the future. They are gone because you loved us. And that's how powerful your death is for us. So Lord, help us examine ourselves. Help us walk a better walk with you. Help us know that you're there for us and help us bow down to you that day in the future when we are before your throne. In your wonderful name, amen.